1: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. Do you have to be an optimist to believe the world can reverse climate change? I'm probably not alone in being daunted by the scale of the emergency that we're facing. And as for COP26, the jury is out. But by focusing on one aspect of what is a vast problem, we might start to get somewhere. We're looking at the construction industry this week. And the title of this episode is Build a Better Place. And perhaps we should add, Build with more imagination. Here's Darshil Shah from the Centre for Natural Material Innovation speaking on the Naked Scientist show, Custard Unflustered.
2: Bamboo is a fantastic material. It grows really fast. So there are over a thousand species of bamboo. Some of these can grow at a rate of a metre a day or one millimetre every 90 seconds. And while it grows, it captures carbon as well as stores it within the material. And it is also abundant in
1: certain parts of the world that's the sort of innovative thinking we need to build sustainably. With me to talk about building a better place is Dr. Tim Winter, Muslim scholar known as Abdul Hakim Murad, founder and dean of the Cambridge Muslim College and chair of trustees of the recently completed and much praised Cambridge Mosque. Joining him is the architect Sam Turner, who sits on the steering group of ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, which was founded during the Extinction Rebellion uprising. Tim, the new Cambridge Mosque is already becoming a world-class landmark building, shortlisted for the Sterling Award. Does the mosque have an inclusive attitude towards religious architecture in general?
2: Well, we take our inspiration, really, from the fact that the original Arabic word for mosque, jamia, means literally inclusive, so as well as being non-denominational. It tries to a doctor, not eclectic, but a, a kind of unitary approach to the various architectural idioms which it references. So it's obviously an Islamic building, and it uses traditional Islamic geometry, but uh, it also references the local Cambridge Gothic with the fan vaulting, the arches, stained glass windows, and so forth. So I think it's it's making a point about the sort of mutual fertilisation of which the East and West are, are capable, but without being too kind of dogmatic or ideological about it. I think it works quite well on that level.
1: I agree, because when we walked around it, it was King's College Chapel that it resonated for me.
2: That's right. It's an interesting cultural civilizational question, really. How do you build a British mosque If you're building in the Balkans or in Spain or a place that has a stratum of Muslim identity locally, it's a lot easier to answer the question. But Britain is this kind of cold, windswept island that's really at the opposite end of of Europe from the Islamic world. So there isn't really an indigenous Islamic tradition that we can reference.
3: But the architect
2: very brilliantly thought that he'd do things with the Gothic, but the wooden Gothic which adds another dimension of kind of pro-green sustainability, but a certain innovativeness as well. And the Gothic, as you say, you could say that the great masterpiece of the late Gothic in Europe is King's College Chapel. There are people who would defend that view, and that's just down the road from us. But if you look at the history, the deeper history, Rather than this idea of Islamic and Western civilization being separated by a kind of iron curtain, in fact, particularly in the Middle Ages, they were always fertilizing each other, not just at the time of the Crusades, but at other times. There were troubadours, travelers, merchants, and so forth. Uh, it was uh, more of a globalized world than, than we think. And so the Gothic style, it now seems, is actually of Islamic origin. So when Christopher Wren was asked why he didn't choose the Gothic for St. Paul's Cathedral, he said it's not a Gothic style, it's a Saracenic style that he wanted something Christian, which for him meant the Romanesque somehow.
1: Sam, tell us a little bit about this idea of cross-fertilisation when it comes to architecture.
3: I think it's really important to to be taking ideas from different cultures, from different areas. I think religious buildings have always been at the forefront of this sort of material innovation when you look at gothic cathedrals you look at churches mosques temples whatever they are they're the focus of the community and their hopes and dreams and the best of their technology and that's proven throughout time throughout history and it's only recently that we've had the quick access to enormous amounts of energy that have changed how we construct i think the sort of cross fertilization between cultures right now is really important to look back and understand how we build in different climates contemporary architecture seems to be we will try to build the same building in any location and just throw some technology at it and hope that that makes a habitable environment inside whereas actually the climatic conditions around the world are very different and that's reflected in architectural styles And we need to to relearn that a little bit at the moment, I think. If we take the Middle Eastern examples or areas with a very hot climate, you may have a courtyard in the centre to create shade and have a water feature in there that would be the focus of that courtyard, but also provide evaporative cooling to alleviate the heat in that environment. In areas where there may be larger rainfall, you may have big sweeping eaves to create shelter around the building. These are all aspects of a building that have been refined over thousands of years by the people who live there with the technology the materials they have there and I think with modernization and colonialism we've brushed a lot of that away and we need to bring a lot of that back I think into our architecture
1: so Tim to what extent do eco elements in a mosque chime with Islamic notions of nature
2: Well, I suppose on a basic level, you could probably say that all the religions, by being religious, are nature positive and anti-waste. I can't think of a religion that regards waste, consumption, our modern crazy consumer addiction as, as a positive thing. So it's specifically Islamic, but it's probably shared with other traditions. In the Islamic context, you have, of course, the Quran's constant evocations of God's signs in nature. It's talking to an animistic world and telling the animistic pagan Arabs actually trees, stars, mountains and so forth aren't interesting because they have sprites and goblins and spirits inside them. But because much more interestingly, they are the handiwork of a single almighty creator. So that register of Quranic discourse, look at the world and experience the wonder of virgin nature and infer from that. The existence of God is an idea that sacralizes nature. So I guess when Muslims, and then others as well, look at the environmental question, they're different from secular approaches in that not only do they see the world as something that we have to conserve if we're not all going to die <laughs> um, as our life support system, but also something that is sacred because it bodies forth qualities of God. And that, it seems, is is a very, very salient aspect of Muslim teaching, prophetic teaching, kindness to animals, respect for trees, for living things. It's a very recurrent and important aspect of Muslim scriptural culture.
1: That must resonate with you, Sam, and your work at ACAN.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And also in my professional work, I think... We talk a lot in the industry about biophilia and about this idea of learning from nature. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're copying the forms or the shapes of nature, but you're learning from the processes and you're using the properties of materials in the best way to provide us as humans the habitat that we need, the light, the clean air, the coziness and warmth that we require for our natural processes. And that is derived from the natural environment that we evolved in. So we need to consider that a lot while we're designing our buildings and ensuring that we're using what we're given on that site and that we're giving back to that site. I talk a lot more about a regenerative architecture and positive impacts rather than just sustainability because that means continuing on and doing nothing of value that... Actually, we we should now be thinking about going beyond that into something that's more useful. That's, I guess, how I came into the Architects Climate Action Network and started to get more involved in that activism.
1: What does regeneration of architecture actually mean practically, Sam? Could you give us an example?
3: It's a shame we're not visual here, but at the moment, imagine we're on the left-hand side of an X, Y axis. And our buildings generally degrade the environment. Our processes, our regulation right now is set in place to minimise that impact. And we talk about more sustainable design. But what we really mean when we're saying that is we want to reduce this degradation of the environment that we're making. But we then sort of take that down to the sort centre of the X, Y axis, which would be net zero, which would be equivalent to doing nothing, equivalent to us not being there. And I'm much more interested in the other side of the X, Y axis, where... We could have this positive impact where we could make the air cleaner, we could purify the water, we can create habitats and create a more positive impact on the world. And I think it's high time that we started doing that to start off by fixing the mess that we've created on the planet and then to make ourselves into a culture that can sustain itself within the means of the planet. Well, that's what I mean when I talk about a, a more positive and more regenerative architecture. Tim, could you comment on that as far as the mosque is concerned?
1: Are there elements of regenerative architecture in the mosque?
2: Well, I suppose the basic sort of theological rhetoric of the building, which is based on the idea of the tree, is definitely part of that, because a tree symbolises regeneration, and cyclical. The idea of the building is that it invites us to... Uh, a step out of the outside world but into a natural space. But all of the subsidiary technologies, some of which are very high tech and not really natural, if you like, shining machines in the basement and on, on the roof, also build on this idea that even though we're not net zero, which is actually pretty difficult for a large building to accomplish, at least with the current technology, we are well, well within sort of even the high range of the uh, European Union's uh, standards. So we have uh, photovoltaic arrays on the roof. Which pump power into the into the grid. We have uh, rainwater harvesting. We don't have much sun, but no shortage of rain, so we take advantage of that. Uh, we have natural ventilation, no air conditioning. We have air source heat pumps. During the construction itself, we tried to use materials that minimise the damage that the construction industry is often very guilty of. So low carbon concrete and so forth. It's often not understood that one of the major sources of greenhouse gas emissions and unpleasant landfill waste is actually the building industry.
3: I think you're right. It's incredibly difficult to build a building to net zero currently with the systems that we have in place for the construction industry. So the construction industry is responsible for 40% of UK carbon emissions, uh, so all of the greenhouse gases, we're responsible for 40% of those, and 60% of the UK's waste comes from the building industry. A few years ago, for every five houses that were built, one was wasted in just the material that was, was not used. So I, I think that's a huge problem to to tackle, but it's also a huge opportunity to do better and, and I think the mosque is amazing. I think it's a fantastic building. And I think the more we start building in that way and and this pathway to net zero is the pathway to being net carbon positive or net positive in our building. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler.
1: And my guests this week are Tim Winter and Sam Turner. Our subject, how to build better. The idea of building with natural local materials is not new. It's ancient. In the fascinating Naked Scientist show Meet the Neolithic, Steve Batuich and Walter Mancini describe the building culture of an 8,000-year-old civilization in the Caucasus.
0: This is your standard Shuleveri Shomu village. So what you have is a series of circular structures varying in size from, you know, one meter to well, our largest one is close to seven meters. They're clustered together. Sometimes uh, you have buildings that are clustered in a figure-eight pattern, like these two large ones over here, so that you have them in the figure-eight pattern, or you'll have them nearby, and you will also see sort of circular walls that will join them as well. And they'll form sort of small clusters, almost a little like a household area, where you have a couple of structures and an enclosed courtyard, if you will. They are uh, clay mud brick, And they're sun-baked, as you can see. The inclusions here inside the clay, this is definitely uh, mud brick. Mm -hmm. And all these holes, little holes that you can see here, are pretty much decayed organic material, like plants,
2: which are found in the clay. And mixed together with the clay to uh, compact pretty much the mud brick and make it more, uh, more solid.
1: When it comes to architecture, nature has often had a more than just practical role to play. The Gothic cathedrals of Northern Europe mimic the great forests of nature, the columns and piers, are tall, straight trees, the branches spreading out from the trunks, making a canopy over the grounds of the forests. Just as in nature, the branches get their nourishment through the trunk, a stately expression of the delicate balance of weight and space, playing out in a sort of figurative performance. Now, Sam, I'd like to talk about something the Shulaveri Shomu did not have, and that's our highly bureaucratized planning culture, which always seems to be in flux. And I guess it's also flawed. What do you think?
3: I think we do have a lot of problems with our planning system. Uh, it's underfunded and understaffed, uh, and it's inconsistent. It's built on precedent, and so the decisions that are made are not always uh, coming in place in their white paper would be an improvement. I think while it's uncomfortable and time-consuming, I really believe the public should be part of the process and these local plans made with residents and, and local businesses on the best way to meet their specific needs is really important. However, highlighted by the reaction to In Britain, we need to really be brought on a journey to understand the extent to which the environment, uh, people's existing homes and offices... be detrimental to their own health and hastening the extinction of human life i think generally people are slow to change but we don't have that much time to be polite and everyone needs to be quickly understood and understand why we can't rely on such carbon intensive building methods and high energy consumption right now we have to take people on this uncomfortable journey but show them the co-benefits that we have the positive impacts and help them recognise the comfort, the health, the cost benefits of a new architecture, but also that renovation, retrofitting will be a huge part of building going forwards. And buildings will look slightly different, but that can be a very good thing. Tim, the question of local
1: residents that Sam mentioned I would have thought had an influence in in the Cambridge mosque project securing planning permission getting on board local residents raising the money I mean all of that's difficult how did you go about it
2: well what we tried to do was because we're all Cambridge people ourselves we're also local residents was to uh, break down the idea that here is the outpost of a minority religious or cultural community and to engage the residents to find out what they wanted to see on the site um, Cambridge people tend to be extremely sort of neighbourhood aware, particularly that end of Mill Road. If you change the colour of your front door, somebody will write to the councillor and it will be an issue. But in many ways, it's very positive and they've managed to keep away horrible supermarket developments, insensitive roads and so forth. So we brought them on board from the outset saying, well, we need a mosque. What kind of features would you like it to have so that you can feel some kind of ownership of it? Now the first thing they said was, well, we don't like fly parking. Can you please include a car park in your design? Which the planners also insisted on, which is a horribly expensive, not very green thing actually to build. It's just a huge concrete box onto the building. But we did that. And also they wanted some open space because that end of Cambridge is a little bit congested. It's Victorian railway cottages and terraces really. So uh, the first third of the site really is just a kind of public garden with a fountain and people can sit around and enjoy the garden. It's a very English kind of solution. Uh, Sam was mentioning earlier that the traditional Islamic or southern ideal is to have an interior courtyard because of the climate, whereas the English thing almost the kind of suburban semi-detached tradition is to put your garden at the front so passers-by can look at it, admire it. So we did that and that's been enormously popular. And then finally we got them on board by allowing the local residents association to appoint a representative on the jury of the design competition who fed back local responses to the various designs that were competing. And that also was tremendous. So generally, we had a very good experience of good neighbourliness, which again is a religious virtue, and I think that our efforts were appreciated.
1: So much is about prompting people to cross a threshold, isn't it, Tim? Whether it's psychological or whether it's physical, to see a place that isn't perhaps as worrying as they might think it is in the first place. Have you managed to get people, non-Muslims, into the mosque, have a look around to see what it's doing? Do people go into the gardens? Oh, the gardens
2: always busy, yeah. But the interesting kind of psychological or social question is always how much further they want to go, because this is now a famous building. A lot of people are curious, so they're happy to go to the garden. And then there's this large kind of loggia or portico area with uh, tables and chairs. And then some of them venture further, they go through the the screen doors into the atrium. The building is really designed to put the kind of specifically Islamic sacred stuff right at the back of the site so that people feel that they can enter and have some kind of stake in as much of the building as possible. So there's a cafeteria that anybody can sit in and have a cup of tea in the afternoon. It has become a kind of hub for local residents, irrespective of their religious affiliation.
3: Those are the things that are really important to include in the planning process and to bring into to the design of our, our cities, our towns, our villages, that these sort of social spaces, the connections that people make in a more ad hoc way, the things that you can't predict need to be part of how we plan. Our cities allow for that sort of space of intermediate areas. Sounds like a fantastic place for that.
1: I suspect buildings like that, and it's certainly true with high-quality buildings are very expensive. Actually, Tim, I must share a story of the local Cambridge taxi driver who picked me up at the station one time and was telling me about the cost of the mosque. It was a very expensive building. Was that an issue? I know from the Wolf Institute building how difficult it is to raise funds for new buildings. How did you manage?
2: Well, it wasn't meant to be an expensive building, let me put it that way. But with each new meeting with uh, the architects, um, the numbers seem to drift steadily skywards. And Quite early in the process, we decided that this is the only thing we're going to do in Cambridge. The possibility of creating a symbol that's upbeat and positive about the Islam-West interface in this iconic centre of Western civilisation is too good to miss. So let's do something amazing. But it is one of the paradoxes of architecture, I guess, that the more materials you use that actually aren't processed that just come straight from the earth or from trees the more expensive it gets stone is horribly expensive even though the whole planet's made of it wood is pretty expensive especially if you use it from sustainably managed forests bricks and so forth so to the extent that you really go green and you use local materials and you try to get into that uh, sort of production schedule it does become expensive
3: I have trouble with that because I think that's a product of the system we're in right now where fossil fuels have subsidised cheap building, building with composites, things that can't be recycled and and that we have pushed ourselves into this economy where that's the the cheap architecture or the cheap way of building and we value money higher than we we value people's health or the environment or, or the sort of degradation we're creating elsewhere in the world. So I think as soon as you start to value those elements, then suddenly that financial cost isn't as worthwhile. The timber is used many times over, that things are recycled and rebuilt into new buildings. It goes back to, to how we built our cathedrals. Cathedrals were made with the stones from the previous building that was on the site. As soon as we do that a bit more, then the price of using those materials will go down a lot. And the cost of using high carbon materials like steel and brick and concrete will rise. And then I really hope that it will become more economical or seen as more economical to build in a sustainable way. Tim, as a religious leader
1: now, is that something that you can help your community digest? Of course, all communities need to, but I'm thinking of you giving sermons on Fridays, you know, leading the Muslim communities here. How much of that can be taken on board?
2: So many things have turned up as a result of creating this mosque, one of which is that people look to us for some kind of guidance on eco-issues within an Islamic framework generally. So we've tried to pack the website with basic information about the Quran and nature, how the building works. There are various initiatives in the UK for greening the mosques and certainly internationally. In Morocco, for instance, Morocco is probably at the very top of the world's league table for the use of renewable energy now. And it looks as if the Moroccans are going to be exporting green energy to the UK within the next 10 years. And that's very theologically based. The Minister of Religious Affairs, Ahmed Taufiak, has explained the religious basis for that. The Indonesians also have a green mosque uh, policy. In the UK, in the West, sometimes you find that the Muslim communities are somewhat insular, a little bit hesitant about new ideas, particularly if they, at least upfront, have a price tag attached. But increasingly, I think there's an awareness that in so called countries of origin, in the Muslim world, they are very much at the front line of the climate threat. People are waking up to this. Unfortunately, there's pushback from some of the hydrocarbon rich states of the Gulf. So the Muslim world doesn't have a particularly clean record on this. But uh, there's certainly a, a groundswell of anxiety about what people can see. Rising sea levels, salination, calamitous floods, increasing temperatures and in places like Cairo. So I think we're at the beginning of what we be a kind of tsunami of new Islamic awareness. And something that, as I said earlier, can probably work very well with similarly minded people in other religious traditions.
1: We're drawing to a close, and I have to ask each of you how optimistic you are about the future of the built environment, beginning with you, Tim, because it sounds like with your last comment that you are optimistic.
2: I think that in the longer term, the real solution has to be not so much the technologies, although they're vital, and even not so much government action, although that's vital, but an attitudinal shift amongst human beings away from this mad culture of throw away consumerism and building for building's sake and knocking down perfectly serviceable old things to build spiffy new things, away from the culture of fashion and back towards the old religious virtues of self-restraint, frugality, finding one's reassurance in culture, family, the spirit, rather than just in the shopping centre. And again, I think that's probably a sea change which all the religions should find plenty of common ground and a space for collaboration in.
3: Generally, I'm an optimist. I've had to find some active hope and work on staying hopeful. I think working as I do and taking in all the climate science, it can be quite distressing. But I think building that understanding, we can make the changes. We have all the technology we need. And I think we can take this as an opportunity to upgrade our buildings and to build a healthier built environment. I have concerns whether we can do it quick enough uh, but picking up what Tim was saying uh, I think finding a community finding the like-minded people to work on this with is the most important thing and I have been so lifted by the Architects Climate Action Network and together we're building stuff that we couldn't build alone and if we can we will build a better world. I have optimism, I have hope that we will
1: I've been uplifted by this conversation and I hope you have too Thanks to my guests, Tim Winter and Sam Turner. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? We've built up a good range of topics, and more than 100 are available for your listening pleasure. You may also want to check out the other podcasts from the Wolf Institute and from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more bracing discussion and some new guests.